Let's go to John chapter 8. these verses as a platform this morning. Beautiful day. Weather's warming up. John chapter 8. And let's just start to read at verse 56. Jesus is speaking said to the Jews that were challenging him, he said, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. And then said the Jews unto him, thou art not yet fifty years old, and hast thou seen Abraham? Jesus, Jesus said unto them, verily, verily, or truly, truly, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. Amen. I'm going to be concluding a series of lessons that we started a few weeks ago on the name and the blood this morning, and uh, hopefully try to bring it together in some fashion, or preachers like to say put a bow on it, but um, I don't usually say that myself, but some people do. But uh, a few weeks ago, before we had a youth team and we had our presbyter visit, there were two series of lessons that I taught. On Wednesday night, we taught a couple of lessons on who is Jesus Christ and why does it matter. And then on two consecutive Sunday mornings, we, we ministered and taught about the name and the blood. And uh, in a perfect world, I would have preferred to, to teach the series without a break in between, but there's often things on the calendar that don't make that possible. And uh, so because of the break and because it's a good teaching practice, I want to recap a little bit of what we covered. I'm not going to rehash the whole lessons, but uh, just briefly summarize each of those that we've covered so far. On the Wednesday nights, let's, let's pray before we do. Father, we thank you for your presence in your house. We thank you for these people that are here. And Lord, we just pray today that, Lord, for some of us, these are things we've heard for many years. For others, it's newer to us. And for some, it's things we still are grasping with, Lord God. And I just pray today that, Lord, that you would give us more than knowledge, Lord God, but that you would give us revelation. Lord, that you would illuminate our understanding. Lord, if need be, correct our understanding. Lord, that it might be in line with your scripture and in harmony with what you would have us to understand. I pray. I pray that you would anoint me to teach and to preach. Give me clarity. Lord, that I would be able to communicate that which you would have me to. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When we taught on who is Jesus Christ and why does it matter, we established that the Jesus is the visible expression or manifestation of the invisible God. Uh, if you weren't here for those lessons, you can probably get those on CD because they're a Wednesday night. The Sunday morning lessons you can get on the podcast. But Jesus is not a part of God or a fraction of God, nor is he one member of or person of a mysterious Godhead as defined by the traditional view of the Trinity. And uh, I'm not spending a lot of time on that today, but the idea and the orthodox understanding of the Trinity, even the Word itself, was a, a concept and a definition that the first century church had no idea of. They didn't use it. They didn't relate to it. It came later on in history. And you can study that if you wish to have a look at that. 
What we read from John chapter 8 was that Jesus claimed to exist before Abraham. Before Abraham. Now, Abraham to the Jews was their beginning point. Now, they they knew about Noah and they knew about Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel and Seth. They had those things in their scriptures. But as a nation, they looked to Abraham as the patriarch and his sons as the patriarchs. And from his grandson Jacob, the 12 sons, the 12 tribes, the nation of Israel came. And so Abraham is really, from the perspective of of a Jewish identity, Abraham is day one as far as the nation on earth goes. And so for Jesus to make the statement that he was around before Abraham was an incredibly bold statement to make to Jewish people, to leaders and religious rulers of his day. He also in the same statement, by declaring that before Abraham was, I am, he also claimed to be the God that spoke to Moses out of the burning bush. So he claimed to predate Abraham, and also to be the God that spoke to Moses. Now, as far as Israel is concerned as a nation, Abraham and Moses is basically where it was at. One is the father in the the genetic parentage sense of their nation. The other one is the one that gave them the law that God gave to him. And so they are two massive characters in Israel's history. It wasn't a coincidence that Jesus made these references in his answer. He was saying, I am before that, and I was the one that gave Moses the law that you guys are apparently trying to uphold. And they recognized when he said that, the claim that he was making, because if you read the next verse, you'll see they wanted to stone him. And in another place, the Lord said to them when they wanted to kill him, he said, I've done a lot of good works. For which of these good works do you want to stone me? And they said, for a good work, we stone thee not, but because thou, being a man, makest thyself God. And so when the Lord made that statement in John 8, his body was only about 30 years old. It was only around the 30 years, thereabouts. You can probably study it out and narrow it down to a few months, but that's not particularly important this morning. The, the point is his body was still young. 30 is young from where I'm looking at. 30 used to be old. 30 is really young now from where I'm standing. It's amazing how your point of view changes your perspective. But the spirit that was in Jesus Christ, his body was only 30 years old, but the spirit that dwelt in him had no beginning and has no ending. That's why he was able to make statements that defied the time frame that he lived in, that defied the limitations of natural calendars and months and years, and they knew you're not even 50 years old. How can you make that statement? He wasn't saying that his hands and his fingers and his physical components were there before Abraham. But when he said, he that hath seen the Father, sorry, he that hath seen me hath seen the Father. If I'm going to quote scripture, I should at least get it right. Jesus was both the Son of God and the Son of Man, reflecting the fact that he had a genuine humanity, which is important, and a human experience, but at the same time, having all the fullness of the Godhead dwelling in Him. Amen. And the descriptions and the titles that were given to God, or at least some of them in the Old Testament, are often repeated 
speaking about Jesus in the new. The same descriptions. And it is very clear from the scripture, particularly in the Old Testament, that the Lord was only one God. That was emphasized throughout the scripture. So any attempt, I'm going to make some fairly bold statements today. If you feel I'm not supporting them, get the previous lessons. I'm just, I'm recapping. But any attempt that we make to divide or to separate God into persons, whether partially or completely separate or even just in theory, has to be dismissed as being extra biblical or coming from outside of the Bible. The Bible does not support that point of view. In fact, the Apostle Paul warned the New Testament church about the dangers of another gospel or another Jesus. He said, if you mess with those things, there are going to be some very severe consequences. And so in that series, when we established who Jesus was, the question is, why is it important that we believe in one God revealed in the man Jesus Christ, not as a half of God or a third of God or a junior God or some wise teacher in history? Why is it important? It's important because who and what we believe about Jesus, if it's not supported by Scripture, then we have a concept in our minds that is man-made and not God-declared. And it's important that we understand that. Amen. A deity or a God that finds its identity and its definition in the mind of a man rather than the Word of God is an idol. Anything that is worshipped, no matter what it is called, that does not line up with Scripture is a concept or a makeup of mankind and is by definition an idol and a false god. And in the Old Testament, the Lord speaks to His people in the, through the prophets and almost almost in a mocking sense, speaks about how men will take a lump of wood and burn it and carve it with their own hands and then bow down and worship that thing. And the Lord said, can it hear your prayers? Can it meet your needs? Is it able to do the things you hope it can do? And the answer is obviously no. Now, I am not saying this morning, and I made this clear in the lessons, that people that attend churches, and I'm not singling out denominations because denominations have never got anybody to heaven yet, but people that attend churches that have an erroneous definition of the Godhead or of who Jesus is, I'm not saying they're idol worshippers. Do not go out of here and say, my pastor said you're an idol worshipper. That's not how you reach people. But what I am the thing is, many of the people that attend other churches have a concept of God that is actually closer to Scripture than the doctrinal statements of their organization. Because that they, they read the Word of God and they're not actually taught very much about who Jesus is. Amen. Nor am I saying, and again, this is important we understand this, I'm not saying that you have to be some kind of theologian or an established scholar that can teach 20 lessons on who Jesus is and the Godhead to be saved. That is not the point. What I am saying is any doctrine or teaching about God that is not biblical misrepresents God's character and his identity, and I do not believe that God recognizes it as himself. Now, people might say things about you. That might not be accurate. Just because they say them doesn't make them fact. 
We live in a world that is obsessed with celebrity, and there are so many opinions about celebrities, but none of us know them. I mean, I could say to you, what do you think of the Queen of England? Some of you might have an opinion. Some of you might like the monarchy. Some of you might be interested in Australia becoming a republic. But none of, as far as I'm aware, none of you have actually met the Queen. I've never spoken to her. If I live to be 100, she might, oh no, she probably won't send me a letter on my birthday. She, she probably won't still be around then. But, but none of us here have met Queen Elizabeth. And yet we might have an opinion. We might say, oh, she's this, she's bad, she's good, she's whatever. But they're our opinions. They're not her identity. And there's a lot of things that are said about God that are done and people claim to do them in the name of God. And God says, I have nothing to do with that. And we, we read in the Scriptures where on that day of judgment when people will come to the Lord and profess to know Him and have done things in His name and He will say, I don't know you. They're making great statements. They were confident, but they did not have what God was looking for. And so it is very important. And so it is not about, it is good to be able to see who Jesus is from the Word of God. But you don't all have to have PhDs in theology to be saved. Otherwise, just about all of us are lost. Anybody got a PhD in theology? I haven't got a PhD in anything. But we do have to believe in Jesus Christ. That's why the Lord said, except you believe that I am He you shall die in your sins. Amen. When we moved on from those lessons and we spoke about the name of Jesus, we considered that the Scriptures throughout both Testaments emphasize greatly the importance of the name of God. From the patriarch Abraham and up to Moses again and settling into the promised land, the name of God was a crucial part of the relationship and the covenant that God had with His people. The name of God didn't only identify him, but it identified his people. The Bible says, if my people who are called by my name. It was a part of their identity as much as it was a part of his identity. And as God revealed himself to his people, we, we established that he used various forms of his name to reveal parts of his nature and character. And with each experience that Israel shared with God, they discovered more of who he was and what he could do. And we talked about some of the compound names of God in the Old Testament, like Jehovah Jireh, which means the Lord who sees and provides, or Jehovah Rapha, the Lord who heals, or Jehovah Shalom, the Lord who is our peace. And there's a whole bunch of those names. And each of them is part of a progressive revelation of God. God is saying, I am God and I can do this. I am God and I can do that. I am God, and for you, I will take care of this or provide that or whatever the situation may have been. And each, each experience they had with God revealed something of God that could not be separated from His name. Each revelation was a step of revealing both His identity and His nature. And this is all important. Amen. But when we get to the New Testament, we are given a name that is final that is complete, that is the ultimate revelation of God's identity. And we know that name today is Jesus. When we get to the New Testament and we get the name of Jesus, every single experience that they had with God in the Old Testament and everything they would experience in the New Testament are now all packaged into one name. We don't have a whole bunch of different names. No more compound names. No more progressive revelation. 
but one name that is above every other name. That we are commanded to use for everything. That's why the name of Jesus becomes so much more important. Because within that name, it's a one-size-fits-all. Amen. And then we spoke about the blood. We saw from the Word of God that life was in the blood. And that the Lord equated blood with life. And that because of that, blood was sacred and was not to be eaten, either on its own. I know that's gross to a lot of us, but it happens. Or still being in the flesh or in the meat. Blood was not to be consumed. Blood was involved in man's approach to God from as far back as the Garden of Eden. The practice of blood being shed, of an animal's life being taken and offered as a sacrifice to God was and is a powerful symbol of the fact that the cost of mankind's sin was still death. Something had to die. Blood had to be shed. And it's gory, and we don't like it, but it was necessary. And whether we speak about man approaching God and worshipping God, we can think about Abel way back in the book of Genesis where he brought his offering to the Lord. We can think about Noah when he came down out of the ark. We can think about Abraham. Whenever they approached God, there was a sacrifice involved. Whether we consider talk about the Lord providing deliverance for his people from slavery or bondage, we think about Egypt and how he gave them the first Passover. There was blood involved. When the Lord entered into a covenant with his people as a whole, when Moses came down the mountain with the law, there was blood involved. It was sprinkled on the people. It was there every step of the way. And then when men were consecrated to serve God, in the tabernacle of the temple, people like Aaron and his sons and the priesthood, blood was put upon them as well. It's there every step of the way. And the Israelites, the everyday Israelite people just like you and I, when they brought offerings for their sin, when they wanted to acknowledge their sins and their mistakes and be made right and be reconciled with God, guess what? There was blood. It was there every step of the way. Whether we think about redemption or worship or deliverance or covenant or service, every step of the way involved a life being taken and blood being shed and applied. If you study the Old Testament, you will see it was applied to altars. It was applied to the furniture in the tabernacle in the temple. It was applied to doorposts at the Passover. It was applied to people when Moses sprinkled the people and when he put it on Aaron's right ear, his right thumb, and his right big toe, I believe it was. And that's the things that are symbolic in that. That's not this morning's message. But the point is there was blood. Blood, lots of blood. And we think that's nasty because it confronts us because we recognize that blood represents life. When we see a significant amount of blood, we automatically assume that death is in the mix somewhere. And it it confronts us, but it needs to confront us because it's the price of sin. And even though it was so heavily emphasized through the Old Testament, Hebrews tells us that the blood of bulls and goats could not take away sin. And we think, well, what in the world is it there for? God required it so much and so often, and it was not negotiable, and yet it could not take away our sin. 
In fact, when you look at this in the beginning of the, the New Testament, in the second chapter of Luke, you see that when Jesus was born, who did the angel appear to? The shepherds that watched their flocks in the countryside. Men who for years and their fathers and grandfathers before them probably were shepherds, men who in those flocks at that very time probably had their eyes on a few lambs that they thought might be good enough for the Passover. When their sheep gave birth and those little lambs were born and some weren't too good, some were a bit funny looking, some had a bad leg, some had a funny eye, but every once in a while they'd say, well, this one looks really good, there's no spot. There's no blemish. And they would keep their eye on that so that when the time came for Passover and the shepherds had to provide sacrifice, those men knew what it was to prepare a lamb for sacrifice. It's not a coincidence that the one who would be our sacrifice and our shepherd, the angels appeared to shepherds in the country when Jesus was born. They'd done that every single year, singling out those that would meet the requirements of the law for sacrifice. But now something very, very different was happening. And we know that in John 1, that when Jesus came to John the Baptist, that that scary-looking wild-eyed prophet out there in the Jordan River pointed his finger and said, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. Amen. When the audience that was there, and I think there was a big crowd when John was baptizing, I don't believe they grasped completely the the significance of John's words. But as a nation, they understood the idea of a lamb and of blood and the taking away of sin. Those things were a part of their national identity since Exodus. Amen. And I've taught, try to bring this together if I can and not keep you for too long, but I've taught these lessons together. Who is Jesus Christ and why does it matter? And the name and the blood for a very important reason because they really don't exist separate from each other. It's not one subject over here by itself and another subject over here by itself. But to really understand the importance and the significance and the power of the name and the blood, you have to understand who Jesus is. When we understand who he is, according to the scripture, it changes our understanding of the significance of the name and of the power of the blood. See, the name of God and the role or function or purpose of the blood are possibly, I won't say definitely because I haven't really looked at it as thoroughly as I'd like to, but they are possibly the two most heavily featured themes in the Old Testament. Every page you turn to, there seems to be blood being shed and offered somewhere. Again and again, the name of God is mentioned, I think it was hundreds, if not thousands of times. And whether we are speaking about individuals like Abraham or a nation like Israel, at every stage of revelation, when they were introduced to a new covenant, because there were several covenants throughout the Old Testament, at every stage, the name of God and the blood were involved. Amen. And yet, even after so much emphasis, and as I was praying and thinking about this in the last couple of days, it really hit me. The the Lord demanded blood sacrifice and offering in the Old Testament. He, He didn't say this is an option. He said this is the way. 
He said, this is the way you will approach me. This is the way you will worship me. This is the way you will find atonement for your sin. This is how you will get direction from me. Sacrifice was there again and again and again. And the covenants that they were in with his name and his blood were a matter of life and death for those people. Yet even after all of that, Colossians tells me that these things, that seemed to be repeated again and again, were just a shadow. So much emphasis, so much insistence and refusal to change or to adjust. And yet even through all that emphasis, Paul said that those things are a shadow of things to come, but that the body is of Christ. In other words... Even though there was so much emphasis, those things are just an outline. But the thing that they are the shadow of is God manifest in the flesh in Jesus Christ. And if he emphasized it so much in the Old Testament, his name and his blood is emphasized over and over and over again, and it's just a shadow, then how important... And how significant and how not negotiable is it in the New Testament when we have the substance and not just the shadow? How much does it matter to God when we don't have examples or types or illustrations, but we have the real thing? Don't tell me His name doesn't matter. Don't tell me that we should stop preaching about the blood. Because if we don't have them, we lose everything. Hallelujah. Everything before Jesus was a type, was a pattern, was an example, was a shadow of what was to come. And in Him was contained, in Jesus Christ, in that manifestation of God in flesh, in Him was contained the real reason for every sacrifice that Abraham ever offered. Every lamb, every bullock, every turtle dove, every sacrifice that Moses and the Israelites brought to the tabernacle and to the temple, every hundreds of thousands of sacrifices that were offered, every one of those, the reason for them is in Jesus Christ. That's how important the name and the blood are. Amen. That's why all of those things were looking to a point in time when Paul said to the Galatians, he said, and when the fullness of time was come, when God said, this is my moment, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law. Hallelujah. In the veins of Jesus Christ flowed blood that when it was shed, it wasn't just good enough to stay in his veins. It had to be shed. When it was shed for the very first time, For the only time in history, it actually had the power to take away my sin. The blood of bulls and goats was required. It was not negotiable. God said they had to do it. But it was all just a shadow. It was looking ahead to him. And when they beat him, and when they whipped him, And when they drove that crown of thorns into his head, so the blood ran down his face and ultimately nailed him to that old ragged cross, that blood, for the very first time, and the only time, was able to take sin and erase it. 
Before that, it was postponed. But at Calvary, he said, wipe it out. It's gone. It's finished. It's gone. I don't see it anymore. Amen. It's not a type. It's not a shadow. It's not a symbol. This time, sin can actually be taken away. This time, it can actually be gone forever. Amen. This sacrifice, this lamb, could actually take my place. Didn't matter how devout you were in the Old Testament. Didn't matter if you could trace your ancestors back to the Garden of Eden, which I don't think was, well, you only had to get to Noah. But none of that mattered. They brought their best offerings. Even they were sincere, devout people. They brought their lamb. They brought their bullock, depending what the sacrifice was for. They laid their hands upon that animal's head, confessed their sin, and that life, that, that beast didn't have a clue what it was doing. It probably was getting a bit restless because there was the smell of a slaughterhouse at the tabernacle. But that animal in its ignorance was sacrificed. And the word of God was obeyed and it was kept. And because of that, that man's status was ongoing with God. But his sin, if somehow you were able to see his account, his sin was still there. His sin was still there. No matter who it was, whether it was Moses or Abraham, or the prophets, their sin was still in the account. But the, the, this is the power of the Word of God. When He was crucified, when that blood was shed, because they'd obeyed by faith back then, and because we obey by faith this far ahead, on that day, the power of that blood took care of their sin retrospectively and takes care of ours going forward. Amen. Is the blood important? Oh, yes. Amen. Is His name important? Oh, yes. Hallelujah. When we say His name, when we say the name of Jesus, we are not saying a name that is a part of some progressive revelation or another piece in some big theological jigsaw puzzle that we're understanding one piece at a time. But in His name, every character trait of God Every demonstration of God's power, all of His holiness, all of His glory, all of it is contained in the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. The reason that His blood and His name are so important is because they are a part of the identity of the only manifestation of God Himself. He's not a theophany. He's not a temporary manifestation. He's not a type. He's not a shadow. He's not an example. He's not a pattern. He's the real deal. Hallelujah. He is the final act of God on earth as far as redemption is concerned. Let's say out a prophecy this morning. But He is the fullness of God manifest in flesh. We don't have to worry about compound names. I don't have to say, Jesus, who is my healer? Jesus, who is my provider? Jesus, who is my banner? I just have to say, Jesus. And that's enough. Hallelujah. Lift your hands and worship Him. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. The name and the blood are so important, so powerful, because they are part of the ultimate revelation of God. They are part of the identity of our Savior. Amen. They are 
a declaration or a part of the fact that the Bible says that God was manifest in the flesh and that in Him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Hallelujah. You ought to be grateful and it ought to get you excited to think that there are no more types or shadows when it comes to who Jesus is. We know who He is. We know that the fullness of the Godhead dwells in Him. Hallelujah. Oh, hallelujah, Jesus. All right, let me add one more layer, if you like, and try to bring this together. It will hopefully help us, for us. Now, we've talked about the name and the blood and, 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 and who He is, and that's important. But let's talk about where it affects us. When a boy is born in Israel, a man child, sorry, ladies, this is just for the, the, the Israeli boys. And even today, amongst Orthodox Jews, we know from the Word of God, and if you look into Orthodox Judaism, you'll see that a, a, a son is circumcised when he's eight days old. Now, the tradition, it seems, or the custom, at least in some of the areas, is that the parents do not share the name they've chosen for that child with anybody before he's circumcised. For those first eight days, he's just baby John Doe. They don't share. They've obviously got a name picked or a family name set aside, but they don't share it with anybody. In fact, some of them don't even say it out loud between themselves because of the significance of what's taking place. But on the eighth day, when that little baby boy, and you can look into how it's very interesting that they say that on the eighth day there are things in a baby's development that have to do with the blood clotting. God knew what he was doing from the beginning. He's got this. He made us. He knows what's going on. But on the eighth day, when that circumcision is performed, as a part of dedicating that son to God, the name is announced. The name is declared. Possibly a family name. And as we covered, I think, in one of our lessons, often the Jews would use the, they would have, you know, somebody bar somebody. Simon, son of Jonas. Simon bar Jonas, meaning son of. And that name was given. Now, there are some people that suggest that the practice was, was just about hygiene, but they don't know their Bibles. Because when a child was circumcised, what is being, I was going to say enacted, but that's not a strong enough word, what is being brought into force as a covenant that God made with Abraham back in Genesis chapter 17 that required that every male in Abraham's house was circumcised as a token or an emblem of the covenant that God made with Abraham. God required it. Again, he didn't say, I've come up with this idea, Abraham, what do you think? He just said, this is the token. No choices, no options, this is the token. And it was important enough to God in the Old Testament that if it was not done, that person was cut off from the people of Israel and considered to have broken the covenant with God. Now, you break the covenant with God, you disinherit yourself from the promises of God. So it's pretty important. Amen. So when a child was circumcised, when a male child was circumcised, it was reinforced as a part of the law of Moses. Abraham was given it, then Moses reinforced it in the law, and it became an irreplaceable part of their national identity as a nation. So at circumcision, 
a young boy experiences a somewhat painful process that involves blood being shed. He's given his Jewish name and he enters into the covenant with the God of his fathers. If we're in Old Testament context, not nowadays. But in the Old Testament, that's what took place. The Apostle Paul, who was in his day probably the foremost expert on the law of Moses, when he was challenged after God gave him that Damascus Road experience, later on he said this. He said, but this I confess unto thee, that after the way which they call heresy, so worship I the God of my fathers believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. Paul said, this New Testament gospel that I've entered into, I'm worshiping the same God as Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. People can say it's heresy. He said, but I believe it's the fulfillment of the law and it's the same God that they worshiped. And I would challenge any one of us to take the Apostle Paul on in the debate about Old Testament scripture. I'm not going to argue with him. He knew his word, but God turned him around. So what does this mean for us? Trying to move on a little quickly. Luke 24. Let's turn there so I know you're awake. Luke chapter 24 and verse 46. It says, And said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behoved Christ, or it was necessary, it was required that Christ would suffer and rise from the dead the third day. And that repentance and remission of sins, remission or forgiveness, same word, remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And if you flip across to the book of Acts, many of our Bible quizzing young people could quote this verse, and if you can't, it's, there's not going to do you any harm to memorize some scripture. But Acts 4 and 12 says, Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we might be saved. No, we must be saved. Again, it's a statement without options. It's a statement without choices or a suggestion. It just says you must be saved in this name. Without it, it's all over. Now let's go across to Colossians chapter 2. Try and bring this together. In this chapter, a little further past where we're about to read is where Paul said that all of those things were a shadow, but Jesus Christ is the body. But we're going to read from verse 9, Colossians 2 and 9. Verse 9 isn't about what I'm talking about, but it's always good to read. It said, For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And you are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. Now pay attention to the next couple of verses. In whom also you are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, wherein also you are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God who hath raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. 
Now, this is the same passage that talks about all that other stuff being a shadow and the body being of Christ. And here in Colossians, Paul speaks about circumcision made without hands. It's not a physical process, but a spiritual process. He indicates that something is taking place at a spiritual level. And he directly connects, and this is where this gets important, he directly connects the circumcision of the Old Testament that he first gave to Abraham and reinforced in Moses with dying to sin, or we would say repentance, and with being buried with Christ or baptism. You read those verses, it's there. You don't have to twist it. You don't have to be a scholar. It's there. He directly connects those two. Circumcision with Abraham and Moses involved name and blood and gave them identity and brought them into covenant with the God of their fathers. When we, are, when we repent of our sins and we are baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, we find remission of our sins. There's blood, not ours, not from our bodies, but from His. We take on His name and we enter into a covenant with God that makes us eligible for all of the promises of God. Why is the name and the blood so important? You know, that some people like to discuss, and it's a question that comes up from time to time, about where is the blood applied when we are saved? Because you go back to Exodus and you see they had to take that blood and paint it on their doors or their houses so that God could see the blood. And the, the, the question, it's not... I don't believe, maybe I'm a little simplistic, but I don't believe it's a hard question. The blood is applied all the way through. I don't believe there's a point that blood comes and the other points are removed from that because without the shedding of blood, there's no grace, there's no mercy, there's no way that we can approach Him. His blood was shed, it makes it possible for us to come and repent. It makes it possible for us to have our sins washed away. The Bible does talk about being washed in His blood, and so we draw a strong connection between his blood and baptism and we should but the blood's all the way through that's that's my perspective on that you may have a better revelation of that but then the next question is if we're going to draw this parallel with the old testament all those shadows and symbols and types and examples where is the name applied where do you get your name peter said unto them repent and be baptized every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. And you shall receive the remission of sins. And you shall be filled with the whole... I've messed it up. It's pretty sad when the pastor can't quote Acts 2.38. You need to pray for me. But the name is applied at baptism. The name of Jesus is applied at baptism. It becomes a part of our identity. And then if you read Romans, you'll see that when we receive the Spirit, that adoption process is completed, and we become His children. Now, if you come to my house, I can show you my birth certificate. I can show you my passport. I've got a driver's license and a bunch of other documents that I can bore you senseless with, because every one of them has the same name. They all say Simon, David, Butcher, because Butcher is my father's surname. David happens to be my father's first name as well. But that's my that's from my natural birth. But when I was born again, if there's 
a department of death, births and marriages in heaven. When you are born again, you have a new name added to your name. So that now if there is some record somewhere, my name in the sight of God is Simon David Butcher Bar Jesus. I'm a son of God. I've got natural parents and I've got spiritual new birth. And so his name was added to me in baptism. You see, in the Old Testament, all you had to do was to be born into one of the 12 tribes. As long as you could prove you came from Levi or Simeon or all these other names, you could say, hey, I'm in the covenant. But Peter said that you and I were at a point in history where we were not a people. We did not have an identity. We did not have a name that God recognized. But something happened. Amen. We, we did not belong. You know, I don't think any of us, as far as I'm aware, are, are Jews here. Some of you may be able, if you go back far enough, to find some Jewish in your heritage, which at best makes you a Samaritan. That's the best you'll get. You can find somewhere great, 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 great grandfather, Levi Shlomowitz or whatever his name might have been. You can be a, a Samaritan, but that's the best you can hope for. You can't claim to be in the lineage of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But when you are born again, Ephesians says we were strangers from the commonwealth of Israel, aliens from those covenants of promise. But he's broken down that wall of petition and made of two one so that now we can say, I am his child. And my challenge to you this morning is if you've never been baptized in the name of Jesus, how can you say you're called by His name? When was His name applied to you? Only name, above every other name, whereby we must be saved. Hallelujah. The name and the blood are all revealed in the fullness of the Godhead manifest in flesh and while that's awesome to consider if we don't find a way to connect with that ourselves it does nothing for us but through the shedding of that blood and the taking on of his name and that circumcision being made without hands and that newness of life he said you being dead in your sins are quickened he's made us alive by the holy ghost we can say i once was lost like the old hymn says but now i'm found I once was blind, but now I see. I once was just a Gentile sinner. No claim to the promises of Israel. No claim to anything. But he said, if you will hear my word. The Bible says, to them that received him gave he power to become the sons of God. That's in the Gospel of John. But way up at the end of the New Testament, in the Epistle of John, John said, Beloved, now are we the sons of God. What happened in between? They got born again of water and spirit. They took the power to become. They obeyed. They took that name. They received that spirit. And it's not just about opportunity. It's about fulfillment of opportunity. Let's stand together this morning and lift our hands.